Salam and peace. This is Imam Malik Mujahid and you are listening to our podcast Mujahid Talks. This is the audio version of our daily live show on Galaxy 19 satellite for Muslim Network TV. I have gotten both shots of vaccines but uh, people are uh, still struggling how to work. Quite a bit of confusion. I remember a, a friend of mine used to be a class fellow a long, long time ago, 40 years ago. She's a little older than me and she's asking my help how to book the thing to get it done. A big confusion about how to, how to get the vaccines. And now there are multiple types of vaccines. Who has the choice of what? And in the midst of all this confusion, Here comes a news that West Virginia has done a better job than a whole lot of states in America in terms of uh, uh, using all their vaccines and efficiently providing to neighbors. West Virginia, when did they had a positive news in American media? And that's where we thought we better talk to someone who is in West Virginia. And we were lucky to have someone who has a big flag of West Virginia in his hand, Dr. Christopher Martin. Welcome to Muslim Network TV. Thank you very much. Dr. Christopher Martin is a professor of medicine and occupational medicine. He's also director of Global Engagement Office of the Health Sciences Center at West Virginia University. So another thing is that West Virginia is interested in global engagement? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the country that sends us more students than any others is, is a surprise to many. It's actually Saudi Arabia. We've been very active in the uh, uh, Gulf Cooperation Council uh, countries and that region for many decades because we have a petroleum engineering program. And so that has been an early source of students from that region and it's spread from there to programs in uh, other disciplines in engineering, business and in the Health Sciences Center. Uh, and I oversee those uh, health professional related programs and uh, have been very fortunate enough to travel many times uh, to many of those uh, countries. Interesting. So are you happy that the you know pandemic cases are dropping, is situation improving in your eyes or you're more concerned about uh, those British variant and the South African variant coming in? Yes, well, I am certainly uh, cautiously joyous, I would put it that way, ca cautiously joyful in the sense that uh, the, the news in terms of numbers, we peaked in the United States in early January and have seen a steady downward trend, although some concern based on the most recent data that maybe we're plateauing at, at still an elevated level. But nonetheless, I do believe it's uh, fair to conclude that the vaccinations and other measures have resulted in a reduction in new cases, uh, hospitalizations, et cetera. These are all numbers that are uh, beginning to come down. The variants are a concern, as you indicated. The big fully unanswered question at this point is the extent to which these variants will impact the efficacy of our available vaccines. There's some concerning data that they might, but we don't yet have uh, conclusive evidence. So that is certainly a concern. But I'll add that we, you know, these vaccines that we've developed are really very elegant and they're, they're new technologies. And so many of your listeners 
uh, and viewers may be concerned that this seems rushed, uh, that these vaccines were developed at an unprecedented speed, which is certainly true. However, I will point out that, and anyone who has been engaged in science knows this, that a lot of scientific work goes on for years and years and years that perhaps is unrecognized to many. And much of the work on these vaccines was going on for years and years and years prior to the current pandemic and allowed us to develop these really, uh, as I said, powerful vaccine platforms. That's the word that you're hearing, a platform. So the best analogy that I was thinking about to explain this uh, to your viewers was to think about, uh, and I'm not the most technologically savvy individual, but to think about an analogy with a cell phone. Uh, and as someone who travels a lot with a cell phone, you might find that your cell phone doesn't work in a different country. You might think about that as being a different variant of the virus. But what you do is you take the same cell phone and you swap the SIM card, you, you, you put in a new SIM card. Well, that's something that we can do with these new uh, vaccine technologies. We don't have to start from scratch. If uh, the existing vaccines aren't protective for any of these variants, then we can literally use the same vaccine platform, but simply switch some part of the instructions and allow it to cover that new variant. So I think while the variants are a concern, nonetheless, these newer vaccines are incredibly flexible uh, tools that we can easily adapt and catch up. Huh. So the technology is allowing as as variant keep um, and, uh, changing, uh, the vaccine keep changing as well. Correct. We we may be facing a catch up game, but I think we have the technology uh, that that we can do so. Hmm. So <laughs> you know, tell me this thing, um, people who already are vaccinated why they have to keep putting mask on their face? An excellent question and one that, that people, people frequently ask. And there are a few reasons. And th these are, first of all, no vaccine is perfect. So we know that these are very, very efficacious as vaccines go, among the most effective vaccines we've ever developed, uh, approaching 95% for some of the platforms. But that's not 100%. So, and, so what was what were you say we have ever developed? Were there some, uh, I mean, the earlier vaccines which we all take as a kid, uh, are they less efficient than 97%? They're uh, in, in, some of them are in the low 90s. So I think it's fair to say that when we went into this, if someone had said these new vaccines would be 95% protective against COVID, people would have regarded that as an aspirational number, that that would have you know, th that was a higher number than people were, were even hoping for, hmm. to give you some comparison. But it's not, of course, uh, 100%. It's, uh, it still means that 5% uh, of people who are fully vaccinated uh, are not going to be fully protected. And again, that's not uncommon with vaccines. It, it isn't 100% uh, coverage. Um, so that's one reason why these other measures are indicated. Y you may be one of those 5% uh, for whom the vaccine didn't provide uh, protection. A second point is a little bit more complicated, which is that the, when the clinical trials were used to study these vaccines, the endpoint is clinical disease. In other words, when we say that it's 95% uh, protective, it's 95% protective for you to become sick with COVID, uh, which is not necessarily the same thing as becoming infected with the virus. You can become infected with the virus. And as you, you know, and many of your viewers know, 
a, a very large proportion of individuals who are infected don't show signs or symptoms of the disease. So we don't yet know, uh, again, we're beginning to get some data. We don't know the impact of the vaccine on your ability to transmit or spread the virus. So therefore that would be another reason why it would be important to continue to mask up uh, and follow those social distancing measures. Hmm. It, probably that's the reason I was, uh, just this morning I received a call, there was a small procedure and uh, she wanted me to come in a couple of days before the procedure to, to be tested. I say, I already have, uh, you know, second dose of vaccine. I say, well, that, that, that's good, but you still need to be tested before you go through that. So that is probably among the preventive uh, measures. How long do you think uh, those preventive measures will go on? Well, that is the $6 million question. And if you ask my wife, she would say, never listen to my predictions because I've been wrong so often. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think uh, it, it's hopeful that perhaps uh, the summer, the fall, that we'll begin to see uh, some return to normalcy if we continue along the same pathway that we are now. That, that is certainly my hope. And looking at the data, when you see the, the relatively steep decline, again, tempered by some recent plateauing at, at a high level, we hope that that's just a short-term trend. But if the reductions that we're seeing now persist, we're hoping that some normalcy will be returned in the summer or fall. Hmm. So it means I have to wait until summer or fall to hug my grandchildren? Unfortunately, uh, as difficult as that is, uh, yes, that's, uh, that's what we seem to be faced with. I never thought that being grandparent will make me so much longing for my children, but pandemic has given me a gift of extra love, I guess. Yes, and uh, I, I have family, uh, and perhaps some of your viewers do, that live in, in different countries. And so uh, most of my family is actually in Canada, and I haven't been able to visit my 91-year-old mother um, be because of the logistics and the border closure. So it, it, it's challenging for a lot of people uh, in many ways. It's transformed all of our lives. And Dr. Martin, uh, tell me this, you know, West Virginia, which is your home, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it does not normally come into the news in a good sense. Uh, people talk about coal miners and things like that, but it has come to in some good news uh, that uh, it has uh, a very good system of the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. And actually it is said that it is limited by the availability of the vaccine, not by the problems with the distribution system. So tell us so what, uh, what explains that success. Well, you're right. And certainly when West Virginia is discussed in, in public health terms, usually the news is bad. We lead the nation and in some cases the world in such measures as obesity, uh, the prevalence of chronic diseases. We're one of the oldest states in the United States. And so, and, and we've had some social uh, challenges as well. Um, we've been ravaged by the opioid epidemic. It started here very early and is worse in our state. And so you're absolutely right that we're unaccustomed to being um, in not only the national limelight, but the global limelight these days. 
and for positive reasons. And so I can't tell you what an effect it's had on our state and our community. We are so very, very proud and basking in this positive attention. And I've been uh, doing a lot of media work because I'm asked exactly that question. What, what are you doing that's working so well? Because we are leading the United States in uh, distribution of the vaccine. The latest numbers indicate that we're close to achieving 12% vaccination. Uh, that's both doses of our population. Oh, that is so what about, I think, 4% higher than any other place? Uh, I, I don't know if it's 4% than any other state, but certainly, uh, and, and of course the numbers are, are bouncing around, but last week uh, we would have been the fourth leading country in the world um, had we been a separate country to give you some, some sense. And so the, the question that we're being asked, of course, because this is very important from a public health perspective, what are we doing that can be generalizable more broadly to help others have a similar uh, speed and efficiency. And so in thinking about that, um, I would offer two reasons. One is, of course, our size. We are a small state. Uh, we have just under 1.8 million people in our entire state. So there are many cities in the United States that uh, greatly exceed that number. So if you're planning a wedding and, and the reception has, uh, the reception party includes 50 guests, that's a lot easier to make sure everyone's food comes out hot and quickly than it is if there's 5,000. So th there's no question that there is a logistical component to this of scale. When you're small, you can be nimble. And so I'm, certainly that's one factor. But then I think we hit on another factor, which was the subject of a piece that I wrote in The Atlantic. Early on, the federal government in, in the fall of last year called for a partnership with the chain pharmacies of Walgreens and CVS as part of the distribution of the COVID vaccine for long-term care facilities. That was the federal plan. States were free to choose to follow that uh, or not. And our state uh, wisely chose not to. And one of the reasons was very practical. We have only about 150 of such pharmacies uh, from, the, from the national chains in our state. And they tend to be clustered in our larger centers. They're not evenly distributed throughout our state. However, we have unusually, and this is surprising to people that may be bringing them back decades in time, we have approximately 250 family-owned community-based pharmacies throughout the state. And they're far more evenly distributed and reaching our very rural population. And so our state decision makers decided that they would partner with the community-based pharmacies rather than the chain pharmacies. And I think that hit on something very important because by putting the vaccine in the hands of the local community people, the people known and familiar to the candidates for the vaccine, that was a relationship of trust. And if we know anything about people's concerns about vaccines, most of them relate to trust issues. Uh, they, they don't trust how the vaccine was developed. They don't trust the, the messenger who's providing information about the vaccine. And therefore, if we can overcome that through relationships of trust by empowering our local community-based providers, the people that you went to school with, that you grew up with, uh, whose name you know, that I think was a very powerful component of our success and resulted in us vaccinating everybody who wanted to be vaccinated by the end of January in the long-term care facilities. They'd gotten both doses by the end of uh, January. Um, and accordingly, we saw our COVID outbreaks in long-term care facilities drop in half over that same time period. You're listening to our podcast, Mujahid Talk. We'll be right back 
after these messages welcome back to our podcast dr martin you mentioned that west virginia has 250 independent community based pharmacies uh which is 100 more than walgreens and cvs uh what is that phenomena of community based pharmacies i think it's just something that hasn't changed it's uh, always been like that and the national chains that have largely supplanted community pharmacies in other parts of the country that hasn't happened here um so it, it's more of a back to the future type situation where we've retained that traditional uh, model of delivery for our pharmacies hmm. so quote and quote the backwardness help you again strength in this particular operation i hope you never lose uh, those type of strengths so so did cvs and walgreen protested uh not to my knowledge and i should point out that under the recent plans uh vaccines are be delivered through those chains as well and i think that raises a, a, an interesting point i i hope i don't come across as saying that this is the exclusive delivery method again we know that when people hesitate about vaccines that falls along a spectrum um so so there are people who are staunchly opposed to vaccines they have always been staunchly opposed to vaccines and they always will be uh, opposed to vaccines as my irish father used to say with those individuals save your breath to cool your porridge because you you, you won't change their points of view um and then there are people and i place myself at the other end of the spectrum who are very very strongly pro vaccines i was extremely excited uh to get my vaccine at i was really euphoric when my turn came um and i would have been quite comfortable getting the vaccine from a perfect stranger um in a large uh super center it could have been a football stadium in los angeles i would have been quite comfortable with that um so uh it's not an either or approach for some people they're going to be more comfortable getting their vaccine in a community uh uh setting by a physician that they've known for many years or or a pharmacist that they've known for many years especially if they're hesitant other individuals might be like myself quite comfortable getting it uh from from a complete stranger depending upon where they are along the spectrum so i i don't want anyone to think that i uh, i'm proposing this as the exclusive way rather we should have multiple different ways convenience factors there's a whole bunch of different reasons or obstacles to getting a vaccine so we need multiple strategies to effectively deliver them as quickly to as many people as possible do you think this particular method will uh, <clears throat> will allow the community based uh, pharmacies to continue to survive or it will help them actually thrive and compete I I hope so. I certainly hope so. It's a very interesting question. I think they have really proved their value through this. Uh, and and again, they're getting a lot of media attention over this. So I I hope this helps us uh understand the importance. You know, you you made the point earlier, the backwardness that we would think of in pejorative terms is actually a good thing in many ways. And I would argue that in in public health broadly, this is yet another example of the fact that when we have lost some of these traditional ways or 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 methods including with diet and exercise habits and and gardening and activities like that at time spent outdoors it's actually had a deleterious effect so i think it hopes uh, i i certainly hope that it helps these community pharmacies continue to thrive because they have played an absolutely essential role 
um, in our early success. And small businesses, I mean, uh, their value, unfortunately, is not a whole lot recognized to begin with, and especially healthcare center, in which, uh, you know, there used to be, even in Illinois, there used to be independent, uh, uh, you know, places where you go to physician and physician will check you out and all that. That whole thing is disappearing. And uh, whatever the, you know, uh, some big chain will have a name on some of those clinics. And it seems that the whole phenomena of the community physician, a family physician has a almost a feel of the family and the neighborhood. That particular phenomena itself is going away. Do you see, based on this experience, do you think that is something worth paying attention to and preserving? Absolutely. We've known for quite some time that our primary care system in this country um, has eroded. It, it, it's not where it should be. And unfortunately, for the reasons that you mentioned, it's getting weaker. We know that patients are better off when the person that they see, no matter what, the first person that they see for a problem is their primary care provider. Um, you know, to, to since we're based in the United States, we can use the American football analogy of a quarterback. You want to have that person as your quarterback. Um, now, they may pass the football to a certain specialist, but there's always a quarterback who is always touching the football, always having that interaction with the patient. So we know that good health outcomes involve a, a robust primary care system, a so-called gatekeeper. So this individual knows you. Um, and understands your life, uh, your all of your medical problems, understands the totality. The problem that we have um, in our country is with that system being um, eroded, we have over-specialization. So physician or patients go to physicians who are specialists. There is no quarterback. And the specialist takes a very narrow view. That's, that's exactly what that means. It's, that's not a criticism, but a specialist is going to focus on their narrow area um, and perhaps not realize entirely what's going on with the patient. And that can result in a lot of um, duplication. It can result in, in physicians not having a full picture. Um, so absolutely, um, one of the many lessons of this pandemic has been a strong community-based primary care uh, infrastructure would certainly be helpful not only for the next pandemic, but for our health generally. What do you see chances of that thought becoming a public policy at a state and the federal level? Well, that's an excellent question. And the, the problem is incentives. Uh, systems work towards their incentives. And we have really struggled as a nation to incentivize prevention and to incentivize primary care. Our system incentivizes a lot of care a lot of procedures, a lot of surgeries, that's what gets reimbursed. And so the only way to address that is if we, and, and we've attempted this, it's not that it hasn't been attempted, and it's been attempted to varying uh, degrees to try and reorient and in other words, incentivize, including financially, systems that prevent disease or, or systems that, uh, that provide good primary care. Uh, and that's just been something that we've struggled with. Um, again, we've attempted models. There is a, something called a medical home that attempts to replicate that. Um, but I haven't seen it on the national scale and as pervasive as I'd like to see it to be. Is there a, uh, 
healthy debate on that topic or it is off the uh, horizon? It, it, I would say it's a very uh, healthy debate. It certainly the federal government has attempted through its reimbursement mechanisms through Medicare, for example, um, it, it's attempting to do just that. So there's certainly not a lack of understanding that this should be done, but doing so effectively and uh, on a national scale uh, hasn't been achieved to date. Hmm. Now, the hesitancy um, which uh, about vaccine exists because of the conspiracy theory or belief in a certain politician, um, you know, at this early stage, West Virginia has been successful. Uh, but if I remember correctly, West Virginia is considered a Trump country. And uh, President Trump uh, has been more on a macho game uh, than uh, on the encouraging game. So yesterday he has spoken out encouraging everyone to get a vaccine, something which he did not do while he was a president. Do you think uh, that uh, that that will help uh, in West Virginia continue to build on its success story so far? Well, I, I certainly think when, when you look at us, it's important to recognize that um, we're as vaccine hesitant as any other area. So it's, it's not as if West Virginia was less vaccine hesitant before this pandemic. Um, in fact, studies show that rural populations generally tend to be more um, hesitant of vaccines. Um, and, and, and certainly it's important to bear in mind that vaccine hesitancy is not a monolith. People hesitate for different reasons. Everybody's unique. Um, not only is it a spectrum in terms of your level of vaccine hesitancy, but why you hesitate in, as an individual over a vaccine may be very different than the next person. And so I think the most important thing to do is to stop and reflect and listen to the patient. So we know that one-to-one -one communication is important. So that's why I always hesitate to when we say, well, you know, this entire state, uh, what, what can we say about vaccine hesitancy in an entire state? I always caution people that that state is filled with many individuals who have very different reasons to hesitate over the vaccine. Um, it's also important to bear in mind that vaccine hesitancy has always been around. It's been around since about 1800 when we began to vaccinate for the smallpox virus. So there's nothing new about vaccine hesitancy. It might, it might seem new. Uh, it waxes and it wanes, but it's been around ever since we've had vaccines. And in fact, I've looked at some of these historical records and its character really hasn't changed. So we've always had concerns, or not we, all of us, but significant segments of society have always had concerns about vaccines. It's gone up, it's gone down, depending upon certain factors, and it will always be present. So I hope that when we think that way, what we... Uh, it, it allows uh, experts like myself to approach it with sensitivity. Um, I see many of my colleagues uh, respond to vaccine hesitancy by eye rolling and say, this person is anti-science, this person is anti-vaccine, this person just isn't reading the studies and or they're ignorant. And that's not true at all. People are reading a lot of information. Some of it is misinformation, uh, but they're reading a lot um, and they're, they're, they're getting a lot of information um, and, and so given that this is just something inherent to large numbers of human beings, what we really need to do is say, let, let's have a conversation and I'm, I'm not going to dismiss your views. I'm going to listen to your views and we're going to have a conversation. And overcoming that concern really is best achieved by someone um, in a position of trust, as we discussed. Hmm. 
Very thoughtful response, Dr. Martin. Thank you so much for that. Taking people as an individual and helping them have overcome what their particular concerns are, or the type of misinformation they are getting. Uh, you know, you're getting a lot of media attention because of their Atlantic art article. Are there some states who are talking to state officials in West Virginia about this experience? I, I, I am involved in an advisory role at the state level, but I'm sure that many state officials are, are contacting our state officials as well. Um, I know I've been interviewed uh, in Utah, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and always want to take these opportunities because I think the more we can discuss this with your viewers, with all these different wide audiences and get the message out, um, I think that's critical. So I, I certainly think that the media attention is one thing, but also state to state discussions on how we can uh, replicate our success in other states uh, is surely going on. Mm. Because you mentioned in your article, a level of coordination at different agencies and local level and state and all that, that has been helpful as well. So many times the coordination is, uh, uh, especially in larger places, uh, is absent and it's a bureaucratic and nobody's taking a charge, just passing the buck and which ends up wasting time. But let's talk before we take a short break to, if, if West Virginia population is only, not if it is a small population, what, 1.5 million people? Just under 1.8. 1.8. So how come the issues like um, overdose of opiate and obesity type of issues, are un people are unable to ha work on that to, to handle it in the same trusting community-based format in which people who trust are informing other people to move forward? Well, that's an excellent question. And I'm often asked about the connection between uh, this response and, for example, our opioid uh, overdose. I think one of the major reasons, and bearing in mind I'm an occupational medicine specialist, so that may bias me, I think the root cause of a lot of our problems in West Virginia relates to employment. Um, up until the 1970s, you could get a well-paying job in West Virginia. You could help put your kids through university. You could get married, buy a home, have a good life. But that really hasn't been true for high school educated individuals in our state. Those jobs have, have gone or they exist in such a way that you really can't make a gainful uh, job out of many of these positions. And I think that's the root cause. If you think about it, if you don't have decent employment, a person isn't going to want to marry you. You don't seek. Uh, you don't see the the future as being positive, and I think that's led to a, a, a cascade of negative social consequences that have really uh, ravaged West Virginia, the Appalachian region, but it's also spread nationally as well. So while this phenomenon started in West Virginia, it has spread throughout the country tragically. You're listening to our podcast, Mujahid Talk. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to our podcast. Is there any idea how long the protection from the uh, vaccine is going to last? The answer is, unfortunately, we don't yet know. Uh, those studies are underway. Uh, currently, the CDC is, uh, has revised some of their recommendations to assume that it lasts about 
10 months. Uh, I think it I may have been a shorter period of time, but on the order of months right now is what we're assuming for uh, some of the recommendations on quarantining. So we're assuming that, uh, you know, this is not permanent protection as is afforded by many other vaccines, but uh, on the order of months. And therefore, uh, it's possible that we'll need booster shots in the future. We also talked about the possibility earlier in the show of needing a booster to cover a variant. Um, those are all things that we don't yet know. And again, I, I, you know, this is frustrating, I know, for many of us, but we always have to bear in mind that this was a virus that we didn't know existed until December of 2019. Now, that might seem like a long time ago, but that was a short period of time. Um, and so there are many remaining uh, unanswered questions, including the long-term uh, protection afforded by the vaccine. Hmm. So... <clears throat> Now we have a third vaccine in the United States, which has been approved, Johnson & Johnson. And uh, some people are already thinking it's an inferior vaccine. What do you think? Right, so another excellent question. It, the most important thing for your viewers to understand that the outcome that we should all want is for as many vaccines to get into as many people's arms as quickly as possible, including this vaccine. Um, that is what is going to um, answer your question earlier about when do we go back to normal? I believe the pathway to normalcy lies through that collective goal. When we think about vaccines, they actually work in, in two related ways. And I think this is important for your viewers to understand. On the one hand, we can give a vaccine to prevent you, i.e. The, the person receiving the needle, from getting that specific disease. As an example there, you can think about tetanus. Everybody should have an up-to-date tetanus vaccine. That one lasts about 10 years and should be boosted throughout your life. Um, the, the only reason to get a tetanus vaccine is if you're outside gardening or uh, and, and you cut yourself and you get dirt on that cut to make sure that you don't get tetanus. So that's a vaccine given to prevent the person from getting that disease. At the other end of the spectrum might be um, a, a condition like diphtheria, which is given to all children in this country. There hasn't been a case of diphtheria recently to my knowledge anywhere in the United States. And so really you're not getting the diphtheria vaccine to prevent that child from getting diphtheria, but you're doing something else. You're preventing the transmission of the disease in the population. And that's the second reason to get a vaccine. And so when we think about the COVID vaccine, we need to think about both of those reasons. As we're in, the, in these stages, of course, there is that component of you getting the vaccine, especially if you're in an older age group, because you're susceptible to adverse outcomes from COVID-19, and we want to protect you from getting that disease. But we shouldn't lose sight of the second component, which is the population level component, the role that vaccines play in suppressing disease transmission. That's why it would be a great tragedy if people uh, leave or decline to get a vaccine because they say, oh, it's, it's inferior, it's, it's not good enough, I'm going to wait till I get the other one. That means we're all going to lose because the disease will continue to transmit because we won't get what you've probably heard about called herd immunity. And then finally, I want to say a, a, a few comments about this. It's an inferior vaccine. Well, let's let's look at the data. Okay, before before you go there, uh, Dr. Martin, one of the questions which 
you just mentioned is the second reason you get a vaccine is that you don't transmit it. But so far, to my knowledge, uh, none of these vaccines stop us from being a carrier of that uh, virus. Well, as we discussed earlier, we, we don't know that at the individual level. But the early information that we're seeing with the declines in the cases indicates that the vaccine is having an impact on disease transmission, again, together with other measures, mask wearing, social distancing. But certainly vaccine is one of many tools that seems to be having an impact in uh, transmission of the disease. And bear in mind that uh, how is this disease transmitted? Well, particularly by the droplets that people produce when they cough and sneeze, etc., so if you go from symptomatic disease to asymptomatic disease, then you're less likely to, to transmit the disease, even if you're infected, if that makes sense. I see. Yeah. Okay, so talking about Johnson & Johnson. Back to Johnson & Johnson. So it, I hear that. Well, it's only you know 66% protective and uh, you know the Pfizer vaccine was 95%. Well, but in the US, they are saying in the test it is 80%. Uh, it is overseas, it was 66. In the US, it is 80% protection. Right. It, 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 it varied in different countries and it also varied by outcome. So if you look at moderate or severe disease, hospitalization, death, when you, it, it, the protection improved the more serious the outcome to the extent that it was virtually completely protective of death from COVID-19. In other words, if you were vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, it completely protected you against the risk of dying of COVID-19. So that's one point to bear in mind. Secondly, it's not fair to compare the numbers from the earlier vaccines to this vaccine for two reasons. One is, as you indicated, this was studied in different countries, uh, South Africa and Brazil as well, uh, where the variant is more prevalent and also related to that at different times. So we didn't have the concern about variants when the mRNA-based vaccines, uh, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines were being tested much earlier when we didn't have these variants circulating to the extent that they do now. In other words, if we were to retest the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines today, we might not see, I would hope we would, but we might not see the same level of e efficacy that we did when the studies were done last year. Hmm. So, so, so you think that, uh, you know, a summary conclusion uh, is more journalistic instead of more thorough when it comes to consideration that it has been subject to a difficult test. Yeah, it, it was certainly uh, because of the variants and the other countries and the time, it was subjected to perhaps a more challenging viral environment than the earlier vaccines. The most important message for your viewers, when you're asked, which vaccine should I get? My answer is the one that's available now the one that's available today. So please do not decline a Johnson & Johnson vaccine because you think that you're, you're better served by waiting for a, what you perceive to be a better vaccine. That, that, that we do not recommend. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if more information sometimes could be harmful. So the articles going around about Johnson & Johnson, and I think the same thing, uh, more or less the same thing is suffered by AstraZeneca. I don't know how to pronounce that because people are refusing to take that in, uh, in different parts of Europe uh, because it has uh, some bad news and a bad PR. Uh, 
so, so, so tell us this, that um, since it is, it is easy to store at the, uh, you know, do, do, does not require a freezer, ref regular refrigerator is okay. And it just uh, one shot and it's multiple shots. So now people have started talking about it. Does it mean that some poor people and rural areas and people who have less means will be stuck with this type of virus, sorry, with this type of uh, vaccine as compared to everybody in the line gonna get it. Right, well, again, um, you know, I wanna be careful. I, I don't suggest that this vaccine is in any way inferior to the others for the reasons that we discussed. Um, what we need to think about again is coming back to what I said earlier, the most important collective goal is as many vaccines into as many arms as quickly as possible. Um, and, and that's really for two reasons. One is that's gonna end the pandemic, but also time works against us with respect to the variants. Uh, the variants love a situation where there are uh, a lot of uncirculating or, or uncontrolled circulation of the virus in a population. That's how you get variants. They get more and more opportunity to be created the longer the viral uh, epidemic or pandemic is uncontrolled. So really that we have to have this sense of um, urgency. And as someone originally from Canada, I'll quote Dr. Fauci who said early on in a press conference, every Canadian knows this, uh, we, we all learn this, uh, that you, the unique ability of Wayne Gretzky as a hockey player was good hockey players skate where the puck is. Wayne Gretzky had an innate ability to go where the puck is going to be. We need to think about that. We need to be anticipatory in our response to this vaccine. We need to be thinking ahead. So time is not on our side. Uh, this is a collective effort. We need to get the vaccines into as many arms as quickly as possible. Now, in terms of who get, gets what vaccine, uh, th that is, again, going to be driven by some practical considerations as well. Uh, so, for example, what if, what if it's a clinic for homeless people? Um, and as someone who works in a homeless clinic, I can tell you that follow-up is a challenge. You, you see a patient, you tell them to come back next month. Um, that may not be realistic or feasible for that individual. So there's a benefit in a single-dose vaccine. But I don't want people to think that we would give a homeless person an, an inferior vaccine. Rather, everyone is entitled to the same level of care uh, for ethical reasons, but there might be practical reasons that would recommend uh, a single dose vaccine as being more likely overall to achieve our shared goal of getting as many vaccines as quickly as possible into as many arms. Yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> I saw, I think, some, <clears throat> some comments. Uh, there was some story about uh, this confusion account, uh, around if, which vaccine to take. So somebody commented in the comment section, I said, listen, you don't want it. Wait until June. I'm ready to take J and J right now. <laughs> so, so he just mm -hmm. said the same point. You know what is available. If more of us have at least something, and it does prevent, uh, uh, you know, the risk of death uh, thoroughly. And it is one dose. So, because it is one dose, and uh, uh, and does not require a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, freezing power. So some people are recommending maybe younger people, 18 to 28 year old who are more mobile and more uh, super spreader type and uh, are not patient enough to go back uh, a second time, they should be given 
the Johnson and Johnson. So they are over with that and they're running around all over. What do you think about that idea? Well, there's certainly some science to support that kind of a recommendation. Um, there was a study done many years ago, uh, but on over half a million people looking at compliance with uh, multi-dose vaccine regimens, because this is not the only one, or the, the mRNA vaccines are not the only vaccines that we have that require multiple doses. If you've had a hepatitis B vaccine, uh, hepatitis A vaccine, or the shingles vaccine, those are all multi-dose vaccines. And so it's been studied, what are, you know, what is compliance like? Unfortunately, uh, the conclusion of this study was compliance is, is remarkably low, um, no better than 65%. In other words, in this study, uh, no more than 65% of people uh, returned to get all the doses in the series. Um, and in addition, there were predictors such as uh, younger age. So adolescents were particularly at, at risk for not following up with the extra doses. Um, so again, if uh, you have an individualized patient encounter where you, you target the intervention to the person, um, if, if a single dose vaccine um, is what works for that person, um, then, then absolutely proceed. And, and again, at, at the shared level, there's nothing wrong with the numbers of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We have controlled diseases with vaccines of comparable efficacy, like the mumps vaccine is, has similar numbers to this. It's, I think to some extent, uh, our expectations were set by these incredibly effective early vaccines that has sort of tempered our enthusiasm for, for numbers that people shouldn't think of as, as poor by the standards of routine vaccines. Hmm. Well, thank you so much. Let's, let's go a little bit back to West Virginia and its, uh, its success. I mean, you shared two things, not only community-based pharmacies were able to help, uh, but also that uh, you have global influx of students and West Virginia economy uh, has uh, focus on getting uh, foreign students and things of this nature. Uh, tell me, uh, what, uh, what else West Virginia uh, is good at, what people should know? Well, uh, one of our major efforts right now, and, and thank you for the question, because it, uh, it, it's almost like a, a, a promotional uh, opportunity for our state. But I, I came here from Canada 21 years ago, and there's a reason I'm still here. It's an absolutely beautiful state. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful place to visit. And one of the reasons that has uh, kept me here and enjoyed my quality of life so much is, is the beauty of our state. Um, and people are surprised by that, but it is an astonishingly beautiful state to ski in, uh, to, to go down the rivers on, on kayaks or rafts, uh, to go hiking and camping. Um, it is an absolutely beautiful uh, state. When, when I share pictures um, uh, on social media or with my friends, they, they can't believe that these were pictures taken of West Virginia. And so we've got some efforts underway, some very interesting efforts. The, uh, the CEO of Intuit, uh, if you're doing your taxes now, as I did yesterday on, on TurboTax. Oh, so uh, you saved increase uh, increase in the price. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's from West Virginia, and he has donated to our university. Uh, for a, a, He and his wife have made a very generous uh, donation to our university um, with a really interesting idea, and that is to recruit people to our state who could live anywhere, who could work anywhere. These are the remote workers, which most of us are these days. Um, but to attract them to come to West Virginia, drawn by the ability 
um, to go for beautiful hikes and, and enjoy nature and have a quality of life that many people find uh, very valuable that, that isn't available in many large cities. Um, so that is something that, I, that we really are working on um, concertedly to, to get the people to stay here and to draw the young people here because that's been our problem demographically. We're old because our young people are leaving. Uh, Florida is an older state because older people move there. But, but the reasons for our older population are perhaps uh, more negative because we lose our young people. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Christopher Martin. You have been an excellent guest. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you very much for the opportunity yeah. to discuss the work of so, our state. So now your introduction will be Dr. Christopher Martin, the ambassador for West Virginia, who is also <laughs> professor of medicine, right? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Truly appreciate your time. And thank you so much, Sherdil Khan, and uh, for booking this show, and Dr. Abdul Wahid for producing uh, today's show. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. You can always watch our live show on Muslim Network TV, which is 24-7 on Galaxy 19 satellite, which has 57 million subscribers. Our OTT devices like Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Raku. And of course, you can download our app on Android or iPhone or watch it on YouTube or Facebook. Just type Muslim Network TV. And to learn more about us and past shows, come to our website, muslimnetwork.tv. Peace. Salam.